I've been in healthcare my whole career, so I think artificial intelligence, data analytics, business intelligence is starting to have a tremendous impact in healthcare. It's real. We're seeing healthcare, which are slow adopters. We're seeing some just real incredible applications. And so that's what we're doing at Javion. We're using artificial intelligence to make a difference on reducing patient harm, saving lives, and along the way, helping hospitals reduce the cost of healthcare. From SSR Studios, it's Tech Vitals, a show about emerging technologies and innovations. We will take a deeper dive at how things like AI, VR, and sensor technologies are changing how we live and work. I'm one of your hosts, Zach Hilliard. And I'm your other host, Debbie Gregory. We are searching for cutting-edge people using technology to solve cutting-edge problems. Each episode, we will be interviewing amazing thought leaders that are navigating the uncharted waters of emerging technology. Tech Vitals has created a two-part podcast on the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Well, Debbie and I are excited to introduce our next guest, Alan Warden. Alan is the Vice President of Business Development at Jiveon. Jiveon is an AI company for healthcare, integrating within all of the EHRs, as well as an option to provide a customer site-specific application portal. Their AI is engineered to analyze 52 different success factors, ranging from sepsis predictions, readmission reductions, fall risks, pressure ulcers, or any other medical center quality initiative focus, and predict which patients will be at high risk for developing that specific outcome on the day of admission for that hospital organization. Javion's clinical AI core can predict which patients have the greatest risk of morbidity and mortality as a result of acute respiratory illness from viruses like COVID-19. Javion has published their COVID-19 Community Vulnerability Map available online at covid19.javion.com. Well, welcome, Alan Wharton. Debbie and I appreciate you taking the time to sit with us today and to learn more about the incredible ways that Jiveon is using AI to transform healthcare. So, Alan, where did your love of healthcare business begin? Well, I, I going way back, I studied business. I got a Bachelor of Business Administration in college and just uh, enjoyed everything from law. I had a minor in accounting and finance. I just liked the study of business, and I knew I kind of wanted to go in the business field. I graduated from college. I went back to work for group accounting department for a life insurance company, and that summer I said, this is not what I want to do for a career. (laughs) And so I was introduced to the uh, administrator of uh, a hospital, Baptist Medical Centers in Jacksonville, Florida, and that was my first healthcare job. And I loved it because I think I was able to use all, just in health administration, all of the business acumen that I studied, as you know, um, but combine it with a passion for helping people. And that was kind of my core values growing up. And so I just, I don't know, I fell in love with healthcare. Um, it's changed a lot. I worked for, I went to work for a really smart administrator who said, I'm going to hire you. I'm not going to pay you much because you'll get fat and happy. And, uh, if you're interested in this, you need to go back and get your master's. So I worked for the hospital for about a year and a half. And, and I went back and got my master's in health, hospital and health administration. 
Um, so I've been in healthcare my whole career. I worked with hospital systems for a while. Worked for an alliance of not-for-profit hospitals for about 14 years. VHA, which you know, which has now become Vizient, and uh, been in he- uh, healthcare technology and services uh, for the last 20 years or so. How did you learn about Javion and their unique services in healthcare? So I met the CEO of Javion. A friend of mine used to be a hospital administrator in Atlanta. I introduced me um, to Shantanu Nigam, who was one of the founders and CEO of Javion based in Atlanta. And when he explained to me how they're using artificial intelligence to save lives, literally, and that they've been doing that for over 10 years, I was very, I was intrigued. And I just, I, I think this is just a great, um, the company's very focused. Uh, I think it's one of the contributors to our success um, and um, doing some great things with some great technology. So I was real fascinated on kind of the next generation, applying all that that I've been around in healthcare over the years, applying it in the technology area to really leverage this technology to make us better as healthcare organizations. So now dive a little deeper into exactly what the mission is of Javion and what you're seeing in those hospital systems, health systems that you have this application involved with. Well, we've been in the business about 10 years, and Javion, as I mentioned, was founded to save save lives. Uh, I think our mission now is to avoid harm, to help our healthcare organizations avoid preventable harm. That's what we do. And so we're using artificial intelligent technology uh, in the clinical decision support area. Obviously, AI is being applied in a lot of different areas in healthcare, but uh, the, the clinical decision support is kind of where we're living in, in our applications and helping. Uh, we're working with over 250 hospitals. We probably of the hospitals, a lot, if you look at the statistics, a large percentage of our hospitals are obviously planning on using AI. I think I saw a survey where 69% of hospital CEOs and health system CEOs say in the next 24, 36 months is their intent to use artificial intelligence. Um, But of that percentage that's using it today, we probably are doing 40 to 50, 40-45% of the market probably. Could you help us define what avoid preventable harm really means? We're using our applications to help clinicians better understand patients, um, their patients, the rising risk of those patients, or patients in a uh, population health management uh, environment or covered lives, and understanding um, the trajectory that their health is on and intervening. when we say um, avoid preventable harm, by definition, it means it's uh, identifiable, the harm or, um, or the outcomes, negative outcomes that the patients are moving toward. And second, it's avoidable. And actually, it can, that patient can be impacted and that, and that care improved. So for those non-clinicians of our audience, could you simplify uh, an example of what good clinical decision support looks like within your clients' facilities? Yeah. In layman's terms, we're bad about writing all our acronyms, healthcare acronyms. You know, I think as 
the healthcare system has evolved. Obviously, a lot of our healthcare is practiced the way we train our physicians. This is just kind of from my perspective. We've kind of gone to best clinical demonstrated practice um, or validated clinical studies uh, through clinical trials. That's kind of the way we, we practice medicine. So, for example, um, one of the things that's concerning to the healthcare system, when we talk about patient harm, um, some people say that hospitals are some of the most dangerous places to be, right? And so um, we're looking to prevent hospital-acquired infections and those adverse events, falls, those things, patient risk, falls, um, wrong medication, medication errors, just human errors, and then just the hospital infections, which can grow in that environment. All those things fall under patient safety, right? And the other thing is a positive patient experience. All those things we're trying to be better at. And so the way that we practice medicine on the diagnosis and treatment of disease is through clinical trials and evidence-based medicine. That's kind of what our system's geared on. And what that means is when a diagnosis is made for a patient, for an illness, let's say, then the training is to you apply these standard protocols, right? A five-step protocol for this patient. And that's the way you treat that illness. It, it comes from clinical trials. It comes from the literature and the training to know, oh, this to hear this patient has the signs of sepsis, let's say, it could be uh, elevated fever, it could be disorientation, but they, the clinician is trained to recognize that. And then if they, those signs present themselves, they can do some tests to validate that. But they apply a protocol. Okay, let's apply a sepsis bundle or protocol that has these five steps for this patient. So that's a crude and Debbie's nurse and I don't know if that does it justice, but in general, that's kind of how we practice medicine. And so by definition, is it, it relies on the individual clinicians to diagnose the individual patients. And we know that, right, every patient is different. We've also now known over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been studies that come out by Hopkins and others, I think with the one of the leading one, the Kellogg Organization and Foundation, developed studies that have indicated that we know that 60 to 70% of health outcomes are determined not by clinical medicine, but the social determinants of health of the patient, where the health lives, their education, their availability, their access to transportation, um, their, uh, their income levels, the their access to fresh, good food. Do they live in a food desert? All these social determinants of health are driving an individual's health. Well, in hospitals and in medicine, we just we haven't had access to that data and information, and it hadn't taken a part in, in our clinical decision making, if that makes sense. So, so you have that going on. The other thing that we have as it's Right, we're trying to address the cost of healthcare, one of the highest costs of a healthcare organization uh, are our human resources, right? And we have a scarcity of allied health professionals and physicians and nurses. 
those are cyclical in nature, but, but we have a shortage of those, and it's very difficult. So if you take all of those factors, you, you think about technology and how can technology help us in healthcare. And all of us on a day-to-day basis are using artificial intelligence in our banking, on Google, on Amazon, on our phones. Uh, I drove here using my GPS to your all, you know, we use AI every day. In healthcare, we just really have it. We have a lot of disparate data, tremendous amount of data and information that one of the problems in healthcare, it just doesn't talk to one another. I'm, I'm giving you a roundabout answer. So you put all that together, there's a tremendous amount of potential that technology, including artificial intelligence, and we can talk more about that, can help us with, some people call it precision medicine. How do you address each individual patient, their specific needs? And so instead of applying the same 10-step protocol to every patient, which has a diagnosis, we now have technology that can take into consideration social determinants as well as clinical information and financial information on an individual patient and in seconds analyze thousands of data points compared against millions of other patients in a matter of nanoseconds and present information to a clinician to give them a total 360 view of that patient and not only to help them diagnose that patient but also to treat patient specific recommendations or interventions to treat that patient. So basically that's what we're doing at Javion. We're taking social determinants uh, and behavioral health information. We're taking clinical information, financial information and when a patient is admitted to the hospital, we can take that information and tell the clinician, this patient is at risk for sepsis while they're in your hospital and, and, hear, and give them visibility to what's driving that risk. And more importantly, give them the specific recommended interventions based on clinical evidence-based medicine and the, and, the, and the treatments protocols that they're using every day, but we can individualize it for that patient. You, they don't have to apply the 10-step protocol. We do it in stack rank order. Here are the interventions. We'll get that patient off this trajectory toward harm or a negative outcome. So as a physician, what is my interface with JVM? What am I seeing? Yeah. Is it integrated within my electronic health record? Is it a an extra like side by side dashboard? How do you get the turn by yeah. direction? Yeah, yeah. There are a number of ways. We do have a portal, so it doesn't necessarily have to be integrated into other systems. But we're functioning on the premise having the data and technology is great, but still in the healthcare environment, right? You have to action on that. Right, I, I can have the fanciest Google Apps on my phone, and if I don't know how to right, use it or navigate by it, it doesn't help. We want the maximum adoption because we're after the result, uh, the result of avoiding harm. So we want maximum adoption. In order to do that, we've learned to do a couple things. One is 
give the clinicians visibility to what's driving the risk, to what the machine is saying. Clinicians, right, by nature are inquisitive, and it's just a black box. Um, there's a thing in healthcare where suffering is called alarm fatigue that we can talk about. We, we found, look, show them the socioeconomic and the clinical drivers that are leading to the recommendations. And so then on the recommendations, we need minimal um, interference with their day-to-day workflow. So to answer your question is, in most cases, especially for hospital and health systems, we are integrating that back into the EHR. And so it's seamless. Um, If the nurse are going to Epic or Cerner or Meditech or whatever EHR that they're using, and they're logging in and doing their day-to-day workflow, whether they're using notes or uh, worksheets or care plans, um, our recommendations are populated right back in there. So we're integrating those right into the EHR. So it's single sign-on and they don't have to do anything. So in in many cases, they may not even know it's JBON, right? So we're just integrating to give them the information that they need to be more effective in what they do. Now, Jivion facilitates the what, why, and when of patient data criteria by not delivering the data until it matters most in the clinical workflow, correct? Yes. There are, there's a lot of technology out there. There's a lot of companies that are providing dashboards and taking information, a lot of information, and putting it in a dashboard so that the clinicians can easily look at it. But the answer is yes, and we're working when we... We define, there's a lot of different definitions of patient harm. It could be a hospital-acquired infection or condition, like we talk about sepsis, still a major issue, right? It, but it could be C. diff or it could be uh, pressure injuries. Uh, it, it could be um, called eclapsy, surgical site infections, MRSA, those hospital-acquired conditions that that we're on high alert for to watch. It could be falls. This patient is at risk for falls uh, or a fall with injury. It could be a negative patient experience. It could be opioid addiction. We have a risk vector that does opioids. So depending on what issue we're working on, depends, drives the frequency of the data and the data information. For example, something like cess sepsis is very, very time sensitive. So we are actually almost getting real-time feeds and that information is being updated. If a new lab results come in, if, uh, if there's, um, you know, some vital signs that the nurse took at the shift, all the, as that information comes in and the technology, the Javion machine, what we call it, sees that the patient is either deteriorating further or further deterioration, it will push that information to the clinician and alert them that, hey, you're getting close to the turn or you need to turn now. You need to take action now in order to prevent um, further complications for this patient. There are other things that we're working on, for example, in the population health management setting, like a six-month deterioration of diabetes or an avoidable COPD admission. Our technology monitors these patients in a population health setting and basically says this patient in the next six months is going to show back up in your ED for a COPD admission. 
Therefore, here are some things that you need to do to intervene to, to keep that from happening. Now, is that sent to the primary, the primary care physician in the community has that information as well? They do, and depending on the setting, we work with a lot of ACOs, accountable care organizations and managed care organizations um, and population health management companies. So depending, and payers, depending how they're structured and how they're staffed, um, you know, in, in a lot of cases, it's showing up for the care managers or care navigators who are responsible for managing those patients and uh, actioning on them and, and calling on them. Uh, and in some cases, obviously, the physicians as well. So since you've been in the business for 10 years, I'm sure you have some data on how this is working and what outcomes you're yeah. finding. Can yeah. you share some of that information? Yeah, and, and again, it depends. But just in general, we're finding our clients are anywhere from 30 to 50% reduction in incident rates. So if we're, even if, um, even if they have some early risk stratification tools in place for their patients, we're finding because the technology that we're using can find the rising risk that's not easily identifiable in other predictive tools. Um, we're able to identify even additional patients. So we're able to identify these patients that are moving toward that harm and allow them to intervene and reduce those incidents anywhere from 30 to 50%. And again, the cost savings, our technology in general, we, we find it pays for itself in the first 12 months, and in many cases get three to five X return, ROI, on their investment. Because obviously, when you're dealing with sepsis, for example, I mean, the statistics would tell you the average cost of a sepsis admission is about $13,000. But if that sepsis deteriorates to septic, right, shock, um, that cost could go to $50,000. It just has a rippling effect. So you're, we're, we're addressing the cost of healthcare too. Obviously, our whole system's moving to prevent, preventing uh, the prediction and prevention of health. Um, and that's what we're helping our health systems do. Are most of the AI installs for clinical decision support within the existing healthcare facilities? Or are they new facility environments that are innovative and engineered to leverage new technology? Probably a complement of both, but probably more existing hospitals that are looking to be more efficient and effective in what they're doing. Many of them are large health systems that have some experience in data analytics or may even have an internal data analytics or data science team. Folks like Intermountain Healthcare we're working with have hundreds of data scientists. Duke, uh, MD Anderson, Cleveland Clinic, you saw the article, mm -hmm. Cleveland Clinic adopted our sepsis tool to identify early identification of sepsis in their inpatient admission in their inpatient hospitals. Um, was able to increase, I think, 26% to increase um, their detection of sepsis and able to 
early intervention and treat those patients. About how long has Javion been with Cleveland Clinic? Uh, about a year, so they're fairly new. Very short order it as is, far as results. It is, it is. They're a fairly new client of ours. But most of you know our clients, if you think about the industry over the last 10 years, I mean, obviously five years ago we were dealing with a lot of the early adopters, uh, and we're, we're seeing more and more hospitals um, and health systems that are needing help in identifying uh, and preventing harm for patient, improving patient safety, improving patient outcomes. And as they're moving into population health, getting smarter and managing the population on where to deploy their resources. So uh, a lot of them are moving into the population health, which is fairly young. I mean, even though we've been doing this for years, value-based medicine um, is still in, you know, I'd say maturing. So a lot of health systems are getting into value-based medicine and looking to this technology to help them do that. Population health is an accelerating practice in just about every healthcare facility we interact with these days. Organizations commonly encounter challenges with reimbursements based on their facility's fee model. Could you talk about new strategies and KPIs using AI technology to advance both the fee-for-service and the value-based care models? I mean, those of us have been in healthcare a long time. I mean, this is, right, years maybe 20 years ago, they, the, the, the quality chasm to identify the, uh, the, the real patient safety and harm issues and addressing those specifically. So we've been working on this for a long time. Um, but the, our system, we all know, needs to move kind of fee-for-service to fee-for-value. CMS is moving us there. Um, the value-based medicine as, a pace, uh, as opposed to volume-based medicine, the more you do, the more you get paid, is the system we've had for years. So we still have to run our organizations in that reimbursement model. So we have kind of one foot in the fee-for-service industry, and many of these hospital health systems are trying to move toward this value-based care because it is less expensive, right, to prevent to prevent disease as opposed to treat illness. Well, and as we move into a consumer-driven system, got that system, dynamic too. Then I think the value-based care, this is almost a catch-up and an aha moment that AI can really make that tipping point happen so that you you you're, you have that in hand. You can, that's a tool that's already, that's available, it's obviously successful, right. that will really get you to the point where then you can really focus on your consumer. That's right. Right. AI, there, there's a lot of different definitions and people have different thoughts about artificial intelligence, but obviously we're, we, we're in this age where we're teaching computers, you know, technology to think like humans, basically. Um, but uh, the AMA calls it augmented intelligence instead of artificial intelligence. And that's probably a good way for a clinician to look at it. We're not talking about replacing physician and nurses and caregivers. What we're talking about is taking tremendous amount of data and information and augmenting what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. And we, to me, we've got to do this. We've got to be more efficient and effective, right? Especially as you're moving into value base. You're right. The consumers are really demanding, but and you're moving into... Let's say you're an ACO and have 500,000 covered lives in your population. 
where do you start? Well, we all know those patients that are the sickest that are driving the most dollars. The chronic care management, they may have three or four, right, comorbid diseases and, and, and need the most attention. But really where we're going to get the most effect are those patients that we don't know about, that have rising risks that we can do something about that are impactable. And so our technology, we, we're, we call it prescriptive analytics, is because we are identifying those patients and basically saying, look, if you can't get to all these patients, here are the ones that you need to address because these, are, these patients are going to show up in the ED for a COPD emission. These patients are going to show up in your ED for an AMI uh, event. These patients have deterioration of diabetes that, if it's not treated now, it's going to have a tremendous amount of problems later. Then we have a community sepsis vector uh, as well as we're identifying patients at risk for uh, sepsis in the outpatient environment that you can intervene for. And so we give them not only those patients, but we also give them the most effective uh, interventions for each of those patients so now they can become really more effective right you can take the same nurse caregiver FTE and um, increase the amount of product their their individual productivity so as I'm listening and I'm thinking about population health your customer base for this technology I mean I've worked with the payers and they have their set of stratified patients yep. Yep. and elevating you know, the risk. So the payers are one category. Then you've got the community health systems and then you've got the physicians. So it's really a it's really something that everyone can use. How's how does that work? You're not going to be the diversity of the audience. Well, the diversity of the audience, but it's the same people maybe using the same product from a different lens. With the overlap, are you saying with the overlap? Yeah, yeah. How's that? How does that work? Primarily, we are working with hospital health systems, the providers, and we look at the segment. It could be the hospital, it could be a health system, it could be a clinic that are seeing patient kind of an inpatient environment. So we have a lot of our application, we call them vectors, use cases that are targeted toward those type of conditions um, and questions. Hey, can can you help me identify which patients are gonna become septic or get a hospital-acquired condition or have a longer than average length of stay or gonna be readmitted, right, which, which is a financial risk, they're gonna be readmitted to the hospital 90 days after discharge. So that's one setting that we work with, but you're right, on, on the ambulatory side, we may have an ACO whose responsibility it is, and an ACO also is working closely with the payers. So the ACO in this case could be our client uh, where they're looking at a given population and their incentive is to identify those patients where they can intervene to keep them healthy, basically. And I guess to answer some of my own question now that I'm thinking about it, the payers are using claims, so that's not real time. That's right. So we're, yours is more real time. Well, we're, we're both. We're working with payers as well. We've got a contract with Humana, okay. a new contract with Humana, 
and we're kind of in stage three, we kind of went through a, a lot of their internal analytic and technical testing. Um, and they're excited that we're, we're working with them on identifying avoidable admissions, avoidable inpatient admissions, and avoidable ED visits. And so we're identifying those patients that are at risk so that their caregivers can actually intervene or their provider partners can intervene prior to that event. But, um, but you're right, and that's, in, that's kind of an impaired environment. And depending on our customer, um, a lot of times the caregivers or, or frontline caregivers are the ones using the product every day more than physicians, if that makes sense. The physicians obviously are very involved. Um, we have physicians on our team, so we meet clinician to clinician during our implementation process because we customize the solutions for each one of our customers. But the, 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 the physicians in many cases are secondary. They're getting orders from the nurse, they're, right? They're enacting those orders, um, authorizing those orders, and overseeing the patient's care. Right? And assimilating that data and then yep. to make a decision yep. to call the yep. physician. Yep. We, we do have conversations with some of our more advanced system about actually automating orders given certain conditions for a patient without waiting. So our technology has the ability to issue a sepsis bundle immediately and uh, fire those orders off to the lab and other things, but we're not doing that with all systems right now. Is that more of a next generation? It is. As you know, as I think as providers, time is of an essence on something like sepsis. So in those critical situations where there's enough comfort level with the technology and the, and the protocol and the workflow as it's been integrated, they're streamlining their processes, right? They're becoming more efficient and effective, uh, reducing the amount of labor that's necessary. So um, those are some pretty cool things. We were looking at you know, just the different people that we interact with, mostly the technology teams in a health system, the chief informatics officer. Who do you interact with yeah. when you're, is it like now they have the chief, uh, you know, artificial intelligence officer. Yeah. They yeah. have, you know, chief medical informatics right. officer. Chief who's, yeah. who's looking for this type of information that can help improve their outcome? You know, we we probably find ourselves interacting as much with the clinical informatics officer division as opposed just to the pure CIO or CTO, chief information officer, chief technology officer. Because of the clinical decision support that we're doing, to us, it's the, it's the vice president of quality, the CMIO, um, who has responsibility for driving clinical quality in a system and the use of informatics to do that. That is where our sweet spot is. Now, we interact with all of them, right? So we're seeing CMIOs, Chief Nursing Informatics Officer, Chief Data Scientist. But a lot of times when we're dealing with the Chief Technology Officer or the uh, chief Innovation or Chief Strategy Officer or the um, chief CIO, many times they'll be supplemented with a, a clinical right 
executive that has responsibility for solving a clinical problem. And so to me, that's where we get our most traction because we're not interested right in selling technology for technology's sake. What we're trying to do is help them solve specific clinical problems in the organization. Um, so what I'm hearing is that for the frontline care team that are the benefactors of Jiveon's technology, the cognitive machine is embedded within my day-to-day -day care provider experience through my facility's EHR solution. That would remain my primary technology interface, subconsciously unaware it's working in the background all the while, right? You're interacting with Epic and you will continue to do that. So we come in and understand how you interact with Epic in this example, or Cerner or Meditech, how you're using your EHR as a clinician, how you're doing your rounding, how you're entering your notes, how you're issuing your lab orders, how you're interacting with physicians. We understand all of that. And then uh, what we work with the organization on the front end to get a real like an HL7 data feed from the EHR to us. That's how we access the clinical information on these patients. We, we may get a little bit of claims transaction through an 837 claims transaction. So those are really the only thing that we need from our customer. Give us real clinical information, give us some claim information on, on, on this, any of these patients. We then supplement that with the socioeconomic and behavioral data that we acquire. That's outside the EMR. That's outside, outside the hospital, outside the EMR. It's nationally available. Many, many, much of it is publicly available. Maybe Census Bureau, Census Track information. A lot of it is, is purchased, geographic, demographic information. We have numerous sources. We buy a lot of it. We spend millions. Uh, a lot of social behavioral information on digital propensity of an individual or patients. So all of that information we are acquiring, those are the inputs. And so that's all the hospital needs to do. Once that's done, it's a one, one and done on the front end of our installation process. And actually, it's not a heavy IT lift. We are not, it's nothing like implementing and building EHR and implementing EHR systems. We're talking 20 to 12 to 22 weeks is our total front-end implementation for a technical implementation, clinical implementation, implementation um, in order to get go, go live. So once that's done, we during that uh, upfront implementation process, we are integrating with the EHR. So we are feeding that information, patient-specific information, back to them in their workflow. Once we've learned how they're managing patients on a day-to-day -day basis, that's where we're pu pushing that information back. So that's why I say it's seamless to them. They just continue to interface with the EHR like they have. It really sounds like a research machine that yeah. is really extending beyond to bring in more information about everything that's possibly available. An integrated experience. It is, and we're, there's a lot of different names for this, but I'd put it in three buckets, the stages that organizations are going through to use data, to extract information out of data. 
kind of the first phase, I call it uh, descriptive analytics. <laughs> and those are a lot of dashboards, get data across the healthcare system in the hospital, right? Put it in dashboards. And those are more of where we've been, how have we done, does that make sense? And how have we done, what, what, are we meeting our goals, KPIs or, or metrics? And that's good information to take all this inf disparate information and help me understand it. But it's, it what is, you call that? I call that descriptive analytics. It's, there's different names for it, but descriptive analytics because it is analyzing where we've been. You can almost move into this next stage of what is called predictive analytics. So it's taking the same data and information and forecasting what's going to happen. And this, these are very this conceptual, but uh, predictive analytics. And that's using mathematical formulas and algorithms to take historical data and project or predict an, a, an outcome based on historical information. So a lot of healthcare organizations are saying, look, I'm using AI because we're doing predictive analytics. And these huge data science teams in hospitals and health systems are doing predictive analytics. They know, based on EHR, uh, Epic's doing predictive analytics. Cerner's doing predictive analytics. They're taking the data inside their EHR, clinical data. They know this patient showed up three times in the ED in the last six months. Therefore, the mathematical model said the likelihood of this patient, right, this patient is a high risk. We call them flyers, high flyers, or high utilizers, frequent flyers, high utilizer of frequent flyers. It's going to show up in the ED again. So it's just saying this is a high risk patient. And there's some value in that because out of all the work that the clinicians need to know, these patients are at high risk, so therefore I need to pay more attention to them. The third stage I call prescriptive analytics. It is is taking the prediction to another level and basically solving pro specific problems. So in our case, we are taking it down to the patient specific level. And we're not just saying, look, this patient may be a high risk for showing up in, in the ED because they have not three times in the last six months. What our technology is doing, and Debbie, you're right, is taking thousands of pieces of information, and we're going outside the EHR and getting that socioeconomic and behavioral data. We're even working with manufacturers, the Internet of Things, that the, uh, the machines that are monitoring and managing these patients and getting that information. We're getting some uh, patient satisfaction data HCAPs information and data. So any, any, any data that's available can be fed into our machine, and our machine is actually projecting like Google does in the eigenbase technology and basically saying, look, based on uh, the 25 to 30 million patient records that we've accumulated over the last 10 years and the interaction of all this patient, it's using numerous analytical mathematical models um, regression analysis and um, neural networks and just whatever for that specific cluster and it's clustering those patients together and it's basically saying I've seen this patient before 
and therefore this patient is at risk for sepsis and because of all of that information and data, these are the most effective interventions. So it's, it's prescriptive. So I, I think those are stages that healthcare organizations are moving through. I mean, I still majority of them are probably still in stage one, stage two. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, Zach, the industry is moving very rapidly. Probably I read a study that in a 10 year period of time, um, you know, from um, 2016 to 2026, we're, we're more than 10X the amount of acceleration we're seeing in the use of AI and technology to, to, to make clinical decisions. As we build 2020 and the digital transformation of Industry 4.0, get connected with our innovative team. If this conversation has left you inspired, curious, or just wanting to hear more about emerging technology, there are a couple ways you can join us. We welcome you to subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. For more resources about today's content, please check out the episode show notes or drop us an email, techvitals at ssr-inc.com. Culture matters. Our mission is to make a positive difference for our clients, colleagues, and communities. See our mission in action on your favorite social platform. On Instagram at Smith Sackman Reed. On Twitter at SSR underscore INC. On LinkedIn at SSR. And on Facebook at Smith Sackman Reed. This podcast would not be possible without our incredibly talented team of experts. Special thanks to our dynamic EP, Blake Moeller our senior communications associate, Lauren Dean, and the exceptional support staff at SSRHQ located in Nashville, Tennessee.